comes the rain, with my anger comes a tide of emotion, killing joy, cutting steel across your eyes. Are you dead or insane? Hi, this is Brendan Davis from Bedrock Games and the Bedrock Blog, and I'm here with Jeremy Bai for another episode of the Righteous Blood Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about Finger of Doom, a 1972 film starring Ivy Ling Po. And we selected this one for Halloween because it is wuxia, but it's shot a little bit like a horror movie and has some horror movie themes to it. So we thought that it would be a good selection. Now, Jeremy, was this your first time seeing the movie or had you seen this one before? No, this is my first time, and I definitely think it's a great one for this time of the year. It's really creepy and horrific, but at the same time, very wuxia. One downside is that it's really hard to get, based on my understanding. You can get it on YouTube. It's on YouTube. I don't think it's a it's an authorized version, but I don't know where you can even get an authorized version. And then the version on YouTube is like very poor quality, so if you're going to have a bunch of friends over for a movie night, probably not. This this is probably isn't the one to pick, but if you're looking for a you know something horror wusha themed, it's probably harder hard to get one better than this. It's at least at least in terms of kind of obscure ones, it's definitely very cool. It's uh yeah, it's it's tricky to get. Like a few years ago, it was still kind of available. I I I got mine on VCD, and that's I believe the one that's on YouTube is is just like a um somebody basically transferred that onto YouTube. Because that's that's about the quality of the VCD version. So if you think getting the VCD is going to be any better, it won't. And I don't think the VCD, to my knowledge, I don't think that's available anymore. You can, I, I thought I saw a DVD somewhere, but I think it was out of region for me. Um, it might have been a Blu-ray. I don't remember. Uh, it didn't look widely available even then. And I'm sure it's probably available on bootleg in various places. If you you know if you know which stores to go into that that sell that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, it's a hard yeah. one to track down. And sometimes though, that makes movies like this way more appealing because when they're hard to find, it's like, it's like a gem. Do you know what I mean? Like that was like the Jade Raksha for me, which I could not find for ages. I, I was only ever able to find it on bootleg and I actually vowed to never watch it until I got a proper version of it, which, which meant it took me like 10 years before I was, was able to see it. But, uh, and then, and even then I was only able to find it on vcd which as you know from your experience is is not the best quality but um but i think that adds a lot to it and this one uh well number one uh, how'd you feel about it like aside from those things like what was your overall reaction to it because i'm just curious before we get into the discussion i really liked it i liked the sort of fantastic elements of it uh one of the things i like about usha in general is the fact that it tends to be a little bit more grounded in reality as opposed to the cultivation stuff which I'm actually uh, I, I spend most of my time working on cultivation Chinese uh, fantasy stuff as opposed to wuxia um, especially nowadays earlier in my my career I guess you could say I started out with a lot of wuxia but in any case I do like those those more fantasy elements I, I like those and so this was really cool I like the the cast as well and I like the like the character archetypes and tropes that they had 
it, overall, it was just really fun. And I guess one of my one of the things I wish was that it, there was a good restored, high quality version. Um, I like you were talking about finding it. I obviously prefer to uh, point people in the direction of the licensed official version. But in this case, since it's not available, uh, if you live anywhere near a Chinatown, uh, you could try to track down. Um, of shop that sells movies and DVDs and VCDs and that kind of stuff. When I lived in Manhattan, Chinatown, those kind of places were all over the place. I know there's some that exist around me here in San Diego where I live. I'm not sure about other places, but if you go to locations like that, you might be able to track it down. There's a um, there's a bootleg shop in Chinatown here. There's a, there's a few shops, but there's one very notable bootleg shop. They actually hand out rolling paper with uh, on their, as a business card. Uh, when you buy DVDs there. So like they're like all in on the bootleg concept. Do you know what I mean? But uh, uh, And I'm sure they probably have a copy of it there. Like I'm willing to bet that there's a, there's a version or they would be able to obtain it. Um, uh, you know, so there... Uh, now you had said there was something about the title with this movie that you wanted to go over too. The, the title right. in Chinese. Right. So I... As usual, I'm not going to go on and on about the translation elements, but the title in Chinese is just totally different than it is in English. And I'm not necessarily 100% advocate for literal translation. In fact, I definitely am not an advocate of literal translation. Uh, in some cases, translating literally, I think, is optimal, but not always. And this is a one where if they had translated the title of the movie Literally, it wouldn't really make any sense. Really. Well, it's the name of the cult, right? Because the cult was the Taiyin cult, wasn't it? Yes, it is. And that so basically, the Taiyin or the Taiyin finger, Taiyin, the yin is like from yin and yang. Uh -huh. And so the yin, of course, is associated with darkness, with cold, with corpses, with death, with those kind of things. So it makes perfect sense. The Tai is a character, it has a lot of different meanings, but essentially, in this case, it's the same character from Tai Chi. And, okay. you know, Tai Chi is going to, a lot of times when you see it broken down into what it means, they call it the supreme ultimate and supreme being the Tai part. So Tai basically means the supreme or the, it's like a, a exemplifier. So this is like the supreme yin finger. And okay. in Chinese, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, incidentally, so Tai yin and Tai yang are often corresponded or contrasted. So the supreme yin and the supreme yang and the supreme yang, tai yang, is also the exact same word for the sun. So the sun is the tai yang, the supreme yang. And guess what tai yin can also mean? It can also mean the moon. So there's a lot of different things that kind of play into it. And in the end, the supreme yin finger probably wouldn't have the same ring as the finger of doom. So I'm totally on board with them translating it that way. For native speakers of Chinese, I think it, it would actually carry a lot of those sort of like sinister elements because the yin and yang, especially in the fantasy novels, the yin side is always associated with kind of those like sinister, dark, cold things. So it does carry that feeling in Chinese and then directly translating it would have been a mistake. So I am definitely a fan of the finger of doom translation instead of the supreme yin finger translation okay yeah i i i like finger of doom as a name it's very evocative and also it translates into what i see on the screen very well so i think if i had seen a movie called you know the supreme yin finger i, I probably would have been interested but it wouldn't have quite attracted my attention the same way finger of doom did where i was like well what is this about 
Um, yeah. So one thing we we don't really go we haven't really talked about I don't think on air here on the podcast or in any of the blogs or anything is how we approached the the generating of the names of the characters the titles the martial arts and the weapons and everything in the game I I took it as kind of a hybrid approach obviously you don't speak Chinese so you were coming up with your your characters and techniques and stuff just direct from your kind of imagination or inspiration. Uh, but for me, I did a lot of it as if I was translating. So I would come up with the name of the technique or the weapon or something mm. in Chinese in my mind, and then I would translate it into okay. English. Okay. And I also, I also, I didn't think I ever told you this, but I kind of like checked most of your names and <laughs> techniques and stuff to make sure that if you did translate it back into Chinese, that it would make sense. Well, we had but, some conversations about that, I remember. Oh, yeah. Because so, there, there was one I had to fight for. Um, that, uh, remember which one that was? Yeah, it was Wu Tooth Beauty Nua oh, right. and her Wu Tooth. Uh, I forget the name. Of, I, I had to look at the book to get the exact name of the technique, but I wanted it so badly because I, I liked the, the sound of Wu and Tooth. And also I wanted a Wu Tooth, you know, uh, you know, and it, it eventually, I, I think I, I think I just wore you down and we, we went with it, but that was, that was the only one where, where I feel like I actually, you know, uh, uh, because otherwise, if you said, "Hey, this doesn't work for this reason," I pretty much just went with it. Do you know what I mean? But um, uh, but yeah, no, the, I I think that 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 was interesting. The way that I I normally would do it is, I, I mean, I would look up things in you know so that I would have some foundation for it, um, or it would be sort of like something similar to what I've heard in movies and stuff or seen in books. Do you know what I mean? Like you see enough of these characters that you kind of get a a sense of at least how it sounds in translation so that's why i uh you know uh i'm you know but but definitely it was clear to me that you were doing it differently because you were very focused i I remember i would email you stuff and you would send me a message back talking about how well what do you mean by this because you were trying to find what the meaning would be in the chinese and so um that helped a lot actually i thought that i think that made it a lot more authentic sounding um uh, but there's still enough of a flexibility around it that you get things like Finger of Doom in there too. Yeah. You know what I mean? And there's, I think there's definitely plenty of stuff, even from my end as well, where, you know, we weren't trying to make it 100% accurate to the Chinese language. I mean, that wouldn't be as fun. Um, even some, I actually went through and I did, uh, tr- I, ha- I have some lists of, for instance, all of the characters' names and their martial arts name mm-hmm. translated into Chinese, as well as a lot of the techniques and weapons and stuff. And when I did that, um, not everyone corresponds perfectly. Uh, for instance, even some of the character art has um, Chinese characters attached to it. Yeah. And so anybody out there that does speak or read Chinese and English as well, you'll be able to see the difference. Like, I think one that jumps to mind is we have the dead eunuch is one of yeah. the names of one of our characters. If you translate that directly back into Chinese, it just sounds, it doesn't sound cool. It sounds mm-hmm. cool in English, but not in, in Chinese. So the Chinese version is a little bit different. If I remember, I think we call, I call them the corpse eunuch or maybe okay. zombie. Yeah, actually, zombie I actually think it eunuch. was zombie eunuch because um, just the dead eunuch doesn't really sound really good. So in any case, I think this is a, a good example from real life, so to speak, of how you don't need to have perfect, exact, literal translations. I think being flexible is, is actually a lot better most of the time. It's actually, it's one of the most interesting aspects of it because for most English viewers, they are getting it through translation and that leads to, that makes the curve 
for understanding what you're actually getting longer, number one. But number two, it also leads to this weird period where you, you're enjoying it in a way that it wasn't even necessarily meant to be enjoyed. Do you know what I mean? But it produces its own kind of thing. Um, but That's you totally know. true. And also relating to another thing we were chatting about earlier, similar topic is how in the like uh, a movie synopsis or at least the trailer or the back of the DVD part um, that I saw in most of the places online, it, it essentially says that the movie is about two sisters who are yeah. like fighting each other. They're not actually sisters. They're martial sisters or, you know, sect sisters or something. And I think as somebody like you, who's watched so much of this stuff, you, you eventually kind of pick up on that and you yeah. get it. But for people that are new to the genre, and I've seen this personally because there's been a big, you know, surge in popularity of Chinese um, uh, fantasy content. And while the biggest interest nowadays is in the cultivation side, the same terms are used between the both of them. And I see this, you know, there's a big, uh, really popular show called The Untamed, which is a uh, cultivation primarily. There's an a animated version of it, and then, of course, it's translated as well. And I've seen a lot of confusion online because of how they translate brother and sister for terms that do not actually mean brother and sister. And so, yeah, for people that are experienced, they get it. For the new people, it's going to be a little bit more of a challenge to assess what's actually going on sometimes just from the English. Well, it took me a long time because I remember when I, you know, first started watching movies like this, I would just assume if it said brother and sister, they were brother and sister. And then you started to kind of piece it together after a while, especially when you notice the actual, like when the words themselves connect to the translation. Like, you know, you don't learn Chinese watching a movie in translation, but you pick up a handful of words that are really common. And uh, like how, like yeah, yeah, or how is the big one, uh, right. you know, uh, hen how, you know, things like that, and yeah. uh, you know, there's just there's just certain things that get like uttered a lot, so you 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 pick up on them, uh, and and I, and and a lot of times, you know, like you would hear daga or something like that. I think that's like some kind of version of brother or something. Yeah, daga, yeah. Uh, um, and and you'd also hear it affixed to people's names. Do you know what I mean? So it kind of made it more clear how it was being used. Um, but uh, I, I think, I don't know, is it, is it a prefix or a suffix usually in um, in Chinese? When... Well, titles are attached to the uh, end of a surname or a name. Okay. So I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's better to use, I, I would just say it's, I guess you would say it's a suffix in terms of English at least. So in, in in Chinese, you don't say, like, for instance, my surname, my Chinese surname is Bai. So if I was a doctor in English, you would call me Dr. Bai. But in okay. Chinese, you would call me uh, Bai Daifu or okay. Bai Sheng. And it's like that for everything, for teachers, um, doctors, policemen, or in the martial arts thing. So, like, if I was, um, you know, elder brother or senior brother or Bai, I would be Bai Shixiong or okay. I might be Bai Daka or something. So That's the first thing is always going to be the name. That's I would call that a suffix. It's funny because that's like the opposite of how it is in Thai, for what like um if you if you attach uh like uh if you want to like call somebody like younger brother or just uh, somebody who's younger than you you would say nong before their name, or you would say p before their name if they were older, and the same with teacher like crew would go before the name usually, um, but uh, but yeah so um, so. I don't know. We should probably move into other topics so we don't we don't get too uh, bogged down in 
in names and titles and translations. But uh, one thing I, I think we could probably talk about first is just horror and wuxia in general and how it's done in this movie. Because this film, it's not a horror movie. Like it doesn't have it doesn't have vampires in it and stuff like that. But it has a lot of horror movie tropes. And it's shot like a horror movie. Like the, the imagery is very horror movie-esque. And all of the characters are presented similar to almost like universal style monsters. Um, so I don't know. Did you have any thoughts on that or any, um, did any of that stuff register as feeling weird or did it work for you? I mean, I thought it all worked for me as I think we talked about in the, uh, what was it? Painted shoot. I'm the name is skipping me. Uh, painted lantern, not painted lantern. Um, painted skin. Yeah. The painted skin one. I'm not a big horror movie buff. So your your input on that is going to be a lot superior to mine. But that said, I think it just, it, to me, it didn't even, I mean, there, there are definitely differences between your standard Wusha movie and this, but it for it, for me, it came across just being very, 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 very Wusha. And I think yeah. it's actually a really perfect fit for the look and feel of our game, although we didn't really get too deeply into supernatural stuff in the game uh, in fact, we didn't really get into that aspect at all. But you could actually replicate this in the game very easily with some homebrew content for the the technique, basically. Yeah. And then in terms of the sort of like horrific and eccentric characters, they fit perfectly into the like the themes and and, and the actual character creation and leveling up mechanics that we've created as well that we've talked about before in the podcast well like there's a um uh, a hunchback in this movie and we have a hunchback uh a, you know uh flaw in the in the game um i think what's interesting to me is like in wuxia it's it's usually done of one of two ways either horrific supernatural stuff doesn't really exist it all has to go through the filter of the existing physics of the wuxia genre itself and then anything that looks like a zombie or a demon is actually something else that's just explainable through either kung fu like mystical kung fu abilities of some kind or it's somebody in like a scooby-doo type situation which is rather common in, in the <laughs> wuxia genre do you know what i mean it's not as ridiculous as it is in scooby-doo but it's that sort of that sort of you know supernatural veneer but a mundane explanation beneath it. And so like an example, that would be like Blood Parrot or um, uh, I guess another movie would be like Human Lanterns, which is one that we did, which wasn't like supernatural. It was just, you know, there was a human uh, villain wearing a mask. Uh, but sometimes they get into proper uh, proper horror, like the Enchantress or um, uh, I'm trying to think of the... Uh, I guess Legend of the Mountain, though I don't know if that's technically a wuxia movie, really, but Legend of the Mountain kind of gets in that. Um, and then there are films that are really weird, like A Touch of Zen, which kind of walk the line between the two. Um, but uh, we had to pick one way or the other, and we decided very early on we wanted to do a wuxia game. We didn't want to do a very broad base. This has fantasy elements. This has, I mean, there are... There are some items in the game that really push the line. And there's like one or two that actually have the label magic on them. But they're labeled that way so you can just remove them from the game if you don't want magic. But most of the other ones that get really elaborate 
have mundane explanations like you would find in a Gulong book. They just, you know, you wouldn't know it at first. It looks totally supernatural, but it's like just a, you know, the, 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 the justification I always had is this is an ingenious device. And then that sort of explains everything. But yeah. so Righteous Blood is, is basically a lot like this movie where if you want to do horror, you can, but it's going to go through that Kung Fu filter. So you're going to have to either take existing abilities or items in the game or create ones and then you can have you know a story like this uh we have talked about the possibility of eventually doing like a like a chinese ghost story type supplement down the road which uh you know we'll you know you know we'll see you know whether that's feasible or not and you know how many people are interested um you know i think i think it would work but i think it was best to make the game do wuxia properly first and then you know uh you know allow you know you know, for any any kind of horror type stuff that was going to be done in it, to be done, you know, within the genre of wuxia. Uh, yeah, and I think I mean for one thing, you have you know, Wandering Hairs of Ogate is pretty you know inclusive in terms of putting in all the mythology and the supernatural and fantastic elements, and there are other ones out there as well. And I think I mean I've talked a little bit about this on on my blog, and we've talked about it well as well on the podcast. Uh, about you know the the Western take on Wuxia and how Wuxia fits into other role-playing systems. Whether it's I just did an article recently about alcohol um, on my blog, which is on my website JeremyBuy.com. If you haven't checked it out already, but basically um, I think that you know you you have things like the drunken master archetype in the monk. Um, uh, character class in Dungeons and Dragons, and, the, and even in fact the the monk character class in Dungeons and Dragons, the fifth edition at least, is like very overtly wuxia. And so I think that like if you're interested in having wuxia exist in another in a larger fantasy supernatural setting, there's a lot of places out there that you can do that. And if you want to have a really like sort of mythological um, Chinese wuxia setting, you know, Ogre perfect for that. And there's some others out there as well that I'm aware of. But yeah, I think we did a good job of making a very like grounded wuxia, not not supernatural fantastic. I definitely agree. Like as you mentioned, how we kind of kicked around some ideas for how to open it up to a little bit more fantasy, and I think that we could very easily have um, some of those elements in there and still maintain the grounded aspect. In terms of this movie, like like you said, it the the actual technique by which they create these sort of like zombies or whatever you want to call them is explainable by like a sort of quasi scientific martial arts thing where they yeah. insert this thing into their neck and whatnot. And I think that one of the the main ways that this movie is differs from a lot of other typical Usha movies is the sort of like is the mood, I think. And it's yeah. sort of like an oppressive, sort of depressing like you know, feeling where you're watching, like you do in you know horror movies a lot, and you see people dropping left, not they're they're dying and they're they're losing and they're not you know these righteous heroes that are just vanquishing the bad guys, and the people that are dying are not like you know going down in a hail of arrows as they like defend against the enemy or something. They're just like getting slaughtered. Yeah. So I think that sort of dark, um, oppressive atmosphere is something we we also worked into the game. Uh, as well and so i think that's another reason why this this yeah. movie works so well yeah the villain would have fit right in 
in our setting because she's one of these people like the the master tried to tame her she tried to restrain some of her you know violence and her temper and she just couldn't and and then she got unleashed into the world this is also a great plot device to use in a wuxia campaign because the premise is sort of similar to five deadly venoms where it opens up with the sect and one of the students being charged with going and finding another member of the sect in the case of the five deadly venoms yeah, you know, you had to go and find a bunch of people, but in in this one, she has to find and destroy. Uh, you know, if she, if if she can't stop her, uh, the you know the the rogue sect member, and that's kind that's kind of a, you know, again, we don't emphasize sex as much as I did say in Ogre Gate, but that doesn't mean that sex don't exist in Righteous Blood, Ruthless Blade, and they do. And if you're gonna use sex, this would be a really good guidepost for how to how to do it, where um number one if you especially if you decide to have everybody from the same sect which is is unfortunately i found with players that's just really never a popular option but i really wish more people would give it a shot because it really does give a campaign tremendous focus when you do do it um it's just that you know player characters there's a tendency for players to want to all be individuals. So there's that, you know, I want to be Shaolin. I want to be Wudang. I want to, you know, see, usually you're stuck with that kind of party. But if you do get a group of characters that all want to come from the same sect, uh, this would be a really great adventure to consider trying. Um, Cause that, that's just what, what, you know, when, uh, you know, when I was watching the, you know, for this episode, I only watched the first half again. I've seen the movie a bunch, but I didn't have time to watch it twice. Cause I was getting my teeth, <laughs> my teeth fixed today um but i i thought that the uh that opening sequence was a great hook for an adventure um and yeah and one thing that i also liked about the um this one is how i feel like they didn't the, there wasn't a lot of clarity about what this sect actually is like you get the i got the impression that they were that they're like they're not evil but at the same time, they do have their main technique is about like you know turning people into yeah. corpse yeah. zombies. Not and granted, she the, did it to the, bad guys. The good one yeah, did, it did it to, it bad, to bad guys. guys. But there's still kind of a thing about. If, if, I think if I remember correctly, there's even a part where when when the like main protagonist guy kind of like finds out about all of this, I think he reacts with a little bit of sort of like yeah. what sort of reaction. I and we we. Um, in the the sects that we did include in the, in Righteous Blood, I think the majority of them are either outright sinister or at least they have a facade of righteousness, but they're less righteous on the inside. We we talked about this as well. I think one of the reasons we did that is that that makes for more interesting gameplay as well. But that does fit the theme of the sort of Jiang who we created, in which the majority of of these organizations. They might be good, but they have things about them that are not necessarily completely righteous. This struck me as one of the sects that in a in like a, a book would be like unorthodox, but it's actually kind of misunderstood by a lot of the other sects. Yeah. And so they get painted that way, but really the masters are trying to use this this um I don't know what you would call it, this uh this the this this technique that has tremendous potential for abuse uh they're trying to steer it in at least a productive direction it seems or a non you know or at the very least they don't want to they don't want their students going around slaughtering people they want some measure of restraint 
um, you know, like you said, it's not entirely clear exactly what's going on with this group, but we do know yeah. that they're seeking down a member who is out of control. And so it suggests that, that they're not necessarily evil, that they just kind of use this weird technique and, you know, they have a, they have a, probably some kind of philosophy around how it's supposed to be used. At the same time, you know that they're not, you know, goody two shoes because regardless of whether it's you know, they they're using it only on bad guys, they still are using a pretty ruthless technique. Also, there's the fact that the master says, "Go." If I remember correctly, she says, "Go and like bring your sis, bring your you know elder sister back." But if you can't, kill her. Yeah. And then the reaction, her reaction was kind of like, "Whoa, really?" And then like, <laughs> "Okay, I'll do that." <laughs> That's a well. It's also it's a great setup too. I, I love I love the movie too for that reason because it is kind of a show. I mean, there is a male protagonist as well, but it's a showdown between two female characters ultimately, and I think that is um, you know you know there there are there are a lot of wuxia movies that feature female characters, um, but this one really stands out as having uh, two quite stark and unusual uh, female leads. Um, and both of them, and it's funny because they both kind of are presented as vampiric type characters. Like they're not vampires, but they're shot in the way that you would expect a vampire to be shot. And one of them's kind of good and the other one is definitely not good. Um, and, and one of them uses slightly different version of the technique. So she's only allowed to use her Kung Fu at night, which is kind of what gives her the really spooky nocturnal characteristic she has so um yeah plus they both get carried around in coffins which yeah. is, to me that's like that eccentric aspect is so totally like in line with our game and also with gulong stuff it's like yeah. gulong always does does these introductions in his book where, where he'll describe like somebody entering the scene and it'll be like you know it'll be like that like four guys in white robes carrying a coffin and like it's just so totally 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 gulong totally our game as well so i really like that part yeah my, my favorite type of coffin entrance is when they bring the coffin that they're gonna put the guy in after the fight that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah i was just watching what was i just watching i just was watching a movie oh man you, maybe you'll you'll it'll ring a bell but it was it was that exact situation where the uh, oh it was something breaking sword the um the deadly breaking sword i think yep yeah, yep yeah. Yeah, I know that one. That one has that that same yeah. kind of character. Where he shows up with a coffin and their <laughs> name on it. Yeah, I I just love that the hubris and you know the the you know it, it's uh it's it, it's just such like a great psych out to do to somebody like you know man they like they brought a coffin with my name on it you know. <laughs> but, yeah, uh, another thing that the this movie have that I thought would bear talking about. Because it's it's a actually I think a really common theme in Usha stuff that I don't see people talking about a lot. It's a common trope, and that's the uh, retiring aspect. Because yeah. the three there's kind of like one main protagonist, male protagonist guy, but he has two you know martial brothers that they form kind of like their little group of famous people, and they're all supposedly retired. And I think that's a common theme you see where people will, at a certain point, for whatever reason, it could be that they're tired of the bloodshed or it could be that they've reached the top of their game as far as they're concerned or for whatever other reason, they decide to step out of the Jianghu and essentially retire so that they don't have to participate in the intrigue and whatnot. Of course, in the novels, they're inevitably dragged back inside, yeah. back into it for one reason or another. Uh, and we included a, 
uh, an organization in the game, a sect, that's specifically designed for that purpose. And there's kind of a, some mechanics built into it to sort of like make it a permanent or semi-permanent retirement. But I see that in a lot of the movies, and I think that also that's a good hook for either NPCs, and it could even be a, a player character hook as well, depending on you know how you work the backstory in. Well, if you did that, it would have to be a PC who is retired, and the player is willing to bring the character back into the campaign for some reason. You know that might that might be an intriguing possibility. Um, it's it's one of these things it's, you see it in gangster movies too similar type of thing i think because this genre like a like like the gangster genre is so fueled by violence that it's inevitable that some characters are going to get weary and tired of the cycle of violence and so you have this you know retirement mechanism and some of them isn't there like a formal ceremony where some of them even like wash their hands in the basin uh yeah there's actually a chinese idiom called uh to wash your hands in a golden bowl. And so I, I haven't done too much research into um, whether or not that idiom comes from Wuxia or whether it comes from real life. I probably should look into that. But that's actually where the name of our group in the game comes from. It's called the gold, I think it's the golden bowl sect or yeah. something like that. Yeah. And you'll see this in the novels as well. It's usually a golden bowl. They have this official ceremony. They wash their hands and that indicates supposedly they're out and they're not going to participate and you're and the the young people are not supposed to mess with them either at least that's how it's supposed to work in theory yeah so um but yeah so i mean that is that is that that is definitely something i i did want to return to to the hunchback and stock characters because there's a lot of stock characters in this movie and something i just you know noticed about wuxia in general is that you can really get far in a campaign with stock characters and a lot of the movies get far with stock characters and they're still charming and they still work even though they're stock characters do you know what i mean um and 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 i think that's a little bit refreshing because we kind of live in an age when everybody's always like the, the the i guess the the stereotype now is like flipping the trope is the idea which certainly wuxia movies do but a lot of times they don't. They just have a hunchback, and the hunchback is entertaining. Do you know what I mean? They have a creepy woman with long black hair, and she looks kind of like a vampire, and gets dragged around in a coffin. And there's not, you know, uh, you know, and 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 she's just, you know, uh, uh, unrepentantly evil. She does, you know. Uh, sometimes one of the things I like about Wuxia is you can have these stories where people don't necessarily have to explain themselves in a in a in a, in a way. They just sort of are, you know. They are the stock character that they are, and they fully embrace it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's a reason why those those characters are there. And the nice thing about them, at least in my experience in playing in playing role playing games, is that perhaps perhaps it's different if you have a set gaming group that you play with for like many years. I think that would probably be different. But uh, a lot of times, you know, you're not reading a book when you're playing a role playing game, and it's a lot easier for people to identify to that with a stock character yeah. than it is with like this nuanced, complex character that has, that's different from the norms. Like, you know, it, if you're in Dungeons and Dragons and you go into the wizard tower and there's like a cackling wizard, like everybody knows what that is and you can get on with playing the game and having fun as opposed to sitting around trying to, you know, identify the characteristics. And so, yeah, I think this movie had some really great, eccentric i mentioned already but some eccentric 
villainous characters. There's also the the main sort of the guy that's the face of the organization with the he has like a it's it's hard to tell because the quality is so bad. But he has this really distinctive birthmark. I think yeah. it is on yeah. the left half of his face. He's a great one as well. Yeah, he's good. He's good. I, I've done I've done plenty of long campaigns, and the thing I've noticed is. You really you need stock characters. You have to be able to do both, of course. Like if you just always throw, you know, the the cackling wizard, then eventually, you know, the <laughs> players might be like, "Well, another cackling wizard." But but if every cackling wizard turns out to be, you know, suffering from some kind of like medical condition that makes him cackle, and he's really, you know, not like an evil guy. He's you know he's got some other you know like the they 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 have his son kidnapped and they're forcing him to perform all of these evil sorcerous deeds. Uh, you know you want to do stuff like that once in a while or have the misunderstood you know evil sorcerers whatever it is um but if you do it constantly that gets boring too do you know what i mean so um i think having uh having a good command of stock characters so that you can deploy them as needed and understanding that even though it's a stock character, you're still performing them. So you, they're still they're still in unique individuals. Like the the villain in this movie is a stock character, but she's also you know unique performance by that actress. Do you know what I mean? And so she comes across a certain way versus other characters that are similar type. And uh, and so so you know I, I think um, being able to uh, take the stock character and then breathe life into it at the table is what's important um and, and and of course you know you can you know have stock characters with layers and you know nuance when you want but if, if every single character has that that can also get kind of tedious especially in a game where people are going around fighting all the time do you know what i mean like in, in wuxia i think one of the reasons why you have so many stock characters is a lot of characters are introduced and die in like the next moment and you don't have time to give them like 18 layers. You have to make them pop so that they're memorable and they stand for something that is very easily identifiable. They can still be unique, but they have to have like this, you know, they have to be like a devil grandma type character who's like, ah, I know what that is, you know, before they perish. Um, because like, you know, you'll have, you'll, I mean, trust me, if you run a Wuxia campaign, you're going to, you'll have some games where you lose like 18 characters and, you know, if they were all nuanced and deep, you know, you, you probably spent like eight hours on on people that just died in a heartbeat. So um, one of the things that I sometimes do is I have I allow that process to determine who deserves to live in the campaign. Like if some if, if an NPC survives, then they get a little bit more of a deep treatment. Do you know what I mean? Because they've lasted that long. So there's you know, I have more time to think about them. Um but uh, oh, were we going to say something? I was just going to say that I think one big strength in, in Righteous Blood is our system of eccentricities, both just the general eccentricities and the fire deviation eccentricities. Um, again, I have a blog post on this that you can check out on my website. But basically, um, you know, when you're talking about the stock characters, I think it's easy to, with our system at least, to create pretty unique twists on characters whether you're the gm or the player uh, now the the eccentricities the basic eccentricities are not they're, they're basically things you can select as opposed to roll on a table but you could easily 
turn our system of ex- of regular eccentricities into like a table or something and then you could combine a couple to almost instantly create a very unique twist on a, a basic genre trope and then when you get into the fire deviations and you're rolling on tables you can really create some just interesting stuff it, whether it's so we have ones that are both mechanically oriented in terms of gameplay like fighting and stuff and there's others that are more geared toward role play in both sections like one thing i noticed i don't know if you realize this we actually came up with the main list of eccentricities when I was in China. I remember this. And we added to it and amended it and yeah. edited it over time. But one of the very first ones we actually created, this jumped out to me because we basically created the option to create the Joker, especially like Joaquin Phoenix's Joker, because one of our eccentricities is persistent laughter. It <laughs> says you laugh habitually and often, mostly you laugh at times not considered appropriate for laughter. And we created that before the Joker movie came out. Well, I so want to say, Joker movie, I kept thinking it's about not it. based on the Joker at all. It's it's probably. I mean, there's a. I know I've seen Wuxia characters like this, but I think the character that I was thinking of was actually from um, the Yes Madam movie. I don't know if you've ever seen that. With I don't um, think I've seen that one. It's no. got Michelle Yeoh in it. It's a great movie. Uh, I think it's a uh, Cynthia Rothrock and uh, Michelle Yeoh, but the villain in it is this guy who all he really does is laugh. Like he says stuff too, but he, he, and he laughs so much that the actor starts using the laugh as like a tool. Do you know what I mean? To convey different things. So it's, 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 it, so I, I, I'm guessing that that's probably where it originated from. I don't remember the conversation, how that arose. If it came from you or me, if it came from me, that's probably where, where it was. But also like both of us know that just Wusha has, those you know those laughing characters like that there's 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 yeah, there's yeah. like there's there's a, there's a strong trope of like a female troublemaker who causes trouble and rat run, runs away laughing for example um yeah whether whether the fire eccentricities or the regular eccentricities i think our our basic approach was to think through all of the books and novels and movies that we've we've you know of seen, watched, and read, and try to think of what are all the different unique characters that we've seen and the little, you know, quirks that they have, and try to wrap those into that system. And I think, as I mentioned in the blog post, we weren't really intending for it. For me, we weren't. We never even mentioned this, and we weren't. I don't think intentionally trying to do it, or even subconsciously trying to do to emulate or even draw inspiration from Call of Cthulhu. But I really think that it ended up being not exactly the same, but a similar type of thing where your character can end up if you if you want it to you don't it doesn't have to work this way because if you if you focus your character on having good meditation you're not likely going to be going crazy but if you want to get one of those characters you could easily gr- create a character that ends up going very crazy yeah. if you don't have a good meditation skill and i think i suspect that's going to be something a lot of people do like especially groups that are really into role playing because as as an experienced gm i think you've you've worked with you know, players that end up going through a lot of characters. And I think the fun thing after a while is is discovering a new character and like stumbling across a new, uh, you know, a new thing that you've never done before in terms of the role playing and the acting. And this will definitely uh, fit the bill for that, for, for players that like to experiment with their role playing and, and find interesting new characters. Well, yeah, and I think... Um... I, I it's it's kind of like the stuff you see in movies like Holy Flame of the uh, Martial World, where you just have these characters that are almost monstrous from their eccentricities, where they just reach this. It, it's I almost thought of it more like Ravenloft than Call of Cthulhu, but I think it's similar, where there's like an end game that can be hit, 
with the characters by failing these uh, these checks. And it's almost a uh, it's almost like a baked in arc in the system if you allow it to get out of control every time. Um, you know, so I think it's like speaking of characters, though, uh, I, I, it's not really related relevant to this. But but Jeremy had one of the best characters. He had a lot of great characters. But one of the characters he had was a character named Constable By, who's in the Lady 87 book, by the way, who is, it remains one of my favorite characters ever. Um, but uh, <laughs> that guy was fun to play. I actually I, I have to hold back from not like trying to play him too much in other campaigns with other groups um but it's it's yeah he's a fun fun one to play that didn't have anything to do with righteous blood with his plays but he definitely uh you know was in the back of my mind for sure well he, he was a constable who was in charge he was placed in charge of one area and just adopted this title for himself the king of constables and would go around to any place he pleased and enforce the law but he was like very simple-minded so he was easily manipulated and uh so so what i ended up doing was i put him in the the lady 87 book but i made him this character that you can counter in any district um and and he's got like a little advisor who's kind of like a like a uh, uh like a uh, like a venomous sort of you know uh power behind the throne type of character um but yeah he's my he's my favorite guy that you ever came up with um he was basic. The, the original inspiration was actually the little Gal character from Heroes Shed No Okay, Tears okay, that's, he that's was, interesting. He uh, was envisioned as kind of a guy that was raised up in the mountains and doesn't know anything about society and then kind of comes down <laughs> into it and then sort of takes everything at face value, doesn't really, isn't into the whole like intrigue and scheming, so he doesn't really like get that people are going to try to take advantage of him. And so, yeah, that was definitely a very fun character to play. Yeah, and for the, and for those that don't know, like the Jer, Jeremy and I have a shared love of Heroes Shed No Tears, both the movie and the book, and and like he mentioned, Little Gao is one of the main characters in that. Um, yeah, I think I, my my uh, constable by the King of Constables character definitely pushed way beyond what Little Gao is, but that was kind of my starting yeah. point. Yeah, because I did. I actually I didn't even notice. Like I remember you mentioning that now that you bring it up, but I had completely forgotten about that connection with the character. Um, yeah, because in, in Heroes Shed No Tears, at least in, in especially in the book version, the movie as well, but the book more than more so, he really just gets taken advantage of a lot because he's yeah. he's not in, he's not a schemer and he's not a part of the you know the the Jianghu for most of his life, so he just doesn't really get what's going on. Yeah, and I mean, and even in the movie though, they can't really get as deep into it. You know, there's a, there's a lot of things. The uh, the I forget the villain's name, but the villain has a lot more details. Uh, in the book don't lie, you mean? yeah and, and, yeah 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 he's got a, he's got a there's a there's i remember when i first read the story i was like wow there's a, there's a lot more to this guy he makes a lot more sense now that i know all these things about him um so uh so yeah so uh yeah i don't know is there anything else we want to get into on this one um the final thing i wanted to mention which uh it's not particularly important but it, it since we do include alcohol in the game and i have i man i keep mentioning the, the blog i did the whole post on alcohol thing so if you're interested in that aspect you should check that out and there's a whole section in the rule book as well talking about alcohol and whatnot hmm. I, I i won't rehash all the things i mentioned in detail but long story short is we made a choice to go with baijiu as sort of the default alcohol yeah. and 
in some situations that might not per be particularly historically accurate, which I go into detail in in the blog. But we basically chose Baijiu for a couple of reasons, and it, depending on the time period you're in in China, your your campaign is taking place, and it definitely could be the drink of choice. Uh, the authors, especially Gu Long, will mention different ki kinds of Baijiu by brand. And what I notice is that actually, actually in this in a Finger of Doom, there is a scene where I believe it's the second brother of those three brothers is at a restaurant and he's drinking and he has a little, I, he has a little, the serving vessel to me is very unique. It has like a long curved um, spout. And what he says in Chinese when, I, I forget what it says in English. I think in English he just says bring more wine or something mm -hmm. like that. But he specifically in Chinese talks about baigar uh, or baigan, depending on your accent. The R, the R version is more Northern Chinese, um, generally speaking. In any case, the baigar, uh, he mentions it here in Finger of Doom, and I've heard it in other uh, movies as well. Recently, I was watching uh, The Fate of Lee Khan and also uh, Dragon Gate Inn, the 1967 Fate. version. Fate of uh, Lee Khan is a great movie, by the way. That, that is really good. Yeah, yeah. I really like that. I, I attempted to recreate that in the most uh, recent Righteous Blood campaign that I've been running, mm -hmm. and it turned out to be a dismal failure, but <laughs> maybe we can talk about that in another one. <laughs> Anyway, the point is, uh, so in Fate of Lee Khan and Dragon Gideon, which are both King Who movies, I, I saw it in those. And to be perfectly honest, uh, you know, in years past, I, I've watched so many Wuxia movies before I learned Chinese. I have no idea if this term appears in those as well. It could. I, I, I'm keeping an ear out nowadays. But the point is that Baigar is specifically a uh, distilled... Uh, Baijiu, made out of sorghum. Mm. And there's even brands nowadays that are famous Baigar uh, brands. For instance, the most famous, I think, is called uh, Hengshui Lao Baigar, which Hengshui is a city in uh, Hebei province, not too far away from where I lived in China. And their Baijiu is called Hengshui, and then Lao is old, and then Baigar is, oh, incidentally, Bai means white, Gar means dry, so literally means Hengshui's old white, dry, baijiu, and there's other baigar brands as well that are famous in China. And so anyway, I think it's pretty interesting to hear that in the movies as well, because uh, going back to the point we brought up very early on in this podcast, talking about the translation aspects, this is another one of those, similar to the brother thing, where you're not going to pick up on it. I think you're, you're even less likely to pick up on, on this aspect, because at least with the brother-sister thing, after watching enough movies, you kind of get realize that they're not talking about blood brothers, but you're never really going to know what is in that thing that they're drinking on the table when in the subtitles it only translates it as usually wine. Yeah. Uh, but even in the movies, whether you're reading the books or the movies, there are going to be situations where the characters are drinking what is essentially high alcohol content uh, liquor as opposed to a fruit wine, like whether it's Huangzhou, yellow wine, which we have in the game, uh, or grape wine, which grape wine is not particularly common um, in ancient China. Like Gulong will, will bring up grape wine a lot. For instance, in Hero Shed No Tears, that, that villain, Zhuo Donglai, uh, he's always talk, he's, it always says he's drinking Persian wine. And one of the reasons is because 
everything related to him is about the color purple or oh. reddish purple or something. And so it's always describing the Persian wine because it's red, of course. Okay. Uh, but I don't think historically that you're going to have a lot of characters drinking uh, grape wine. So yeah. that's the end of my little monologue about the alcohol. I just, I'm always happy when I, when I see these references that we have in our game kind of coming up in the movies and the books and just, you know, kind of validating the choices that we made to include them. And, uh, one thing I wanted to bring up too is I had talked about how um, how this movie is shot like a horror movie, and that's something that's true actually about a lot of wuxia movies. You know, um, especially in the '90s, the '90s seemed to have a lot of wuxia films that were darkly atmospheric and shot because they used all those Dutch angles and they had sort of a weird vibe to them. They just can't, and 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 whenever they, and and a lot of them seem to feature you know, like use of death imagery, like a lot of skulls and things like that. Do you know what I mean? So like, you know, like even a movie like Swordsman 2, I thought was pretty spooky looking. Do you know what I mean? Or, um, you know, or one that's even more intended to be spooky, like The Bride with White Hair has, you know, a little bit more of that spooky vibe. But like a lot of movies, even if they weren't, uh, um, you know, specifically dipping their toes into horror movies, say the way that like uh, a Chinese ghost story is, uh, they still kind of had that atmosphere of horror to them. Um, and so I think that's one of the reasons why this movie was uh, important to uh, the list that we made of, of, uh, of films that were, you know, influential because it's, you know, it's, it's another movie that brings that level of darkness to the game. There's, you know, there's different ways to, to, to bring darkness to the wuxia genre. And I think this film is very much about having a dark atmosphere and, even even if you're presenting something that is uh you know not supernatural it's 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 kind of sh shown in a in a really eerie and sinister light do you know what i mean so uh an eccentric light as well so yeah uh, and you know i was thinking about it as well this uh this movie would actually make a re i think it would probably make a really great one shot for like a yeah. Halloween, you could even put, you could even fit it into a non-Wusha setting. But basically, if you have a, a group of at least, you know, probably four or five players and having them um, encounter either this exact scenario where they're thrown in between uh, the two, the two sisters trying to take each other out, or maybe you could twist it in one way or, or another. And then having the, similar to the three brothers in this movie who end up one after another getting taken out, have your players one after another getting taken out. And that can be kind of a really frustrating thing in a, in a normal campaign to have your characters dying. But if it's a one shot, you know, Halloween special and you, you know, everybody knows ahead of time that it's going to be kind of like a horror movie. I think this would be a great one to, to throw into the mix as a potential, potential one shot. It seems like it'd be really fun. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I was thinking about that when I was watching it, actually. That this would, like, a lot of times I think of that, like, how easily could I just turn this into an adventure? Um, you know, and, you know, that, that's, sometimes that's, the, you know, like a movie that, that that always struck me as very easy to do was Come Drink With Me, because I know I've done that one a bunch of times. And this is another one that looks like it would be pretty easy to just turn into a, a an adventure line. Um, one thing I, I, I don't remember uh, if it was clear or not, do you having watched it multiple times, did it imply that the the zombified people would be restored to their to normal if they had that thing taken out I of their neck? I think so. I think so, because wasn't there a scene where some of them did... I can't remember if they die or if they 
return to normal. And if I had if I had seen the second half again today, I could have definitively given you an answer. But because I only watched the first half today, right. I can't recall enough. Um, yeah, as usual, I'm 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 watching them in, in little bits here and there because I have two kids that are at home most of the time. So I I kind of get confused uh, about these little teeny tiny details. But well, regardless, if you were doing it as a one shot and you wanted to throw it into a campaign with existing characters and you didn't want them to end up all dead or most of them actually dead, then you could always change that detail, even if that's not what was actually in the movie, yeah, to be yeah, able to have them recover from from it by removing the spike from their neck. Yeah, I mean, it dep- it's, I guess it depends on, um, uh, on, on, on what you want to go for. Um, but yeah, I was actually thinking that same thing myself when I was watching it today. So I was like, wait a second, did these things kill them or did they not? I can't remember. Um, cause, cause I think one of the brothers gets turned into one, right? So isn't that like the, yeah, that's like the, uh, uh one of the big plot elements. Um, it, two, of the three, two of them do. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I, the ending is kind of getting blurry to me cause I, I, I watched it kind of late at night while holding, like my girl to sleep. So I was kind of like a little distracted. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That's a, um, but, but the, it's a, it's a cool, I mean, obviously in a game, you probably would want that to be able to revert back to normal. You know what I mean? It, it's kind of, it would be a clever way of, if you want a threat on the table, but you don't want the players to necessarily die, this would be, that would be one way to achieve it. Is have something like that. Um, you know, where they get basically turned into temp zombies, I guess. Uh, yeah. But, um, you can kind of overdo the whole. I don't. I. I in your campaigns, um, we didn't do too much uh, PvP. You know, uh, everybody leave the table except for one player, or like let's take yeah. this player to the to the back room. I don't know if you do that in your in-person games, and it, you can definitely overdo it. But it it would it can add a fun element if you're you know, you're say okay player one come to the back room, and then they have this this cutscene that nobody else knows about. It, it can add some fun elements as long as you're not too heavy-handed with it. I mean, I I, I allow it. It depend, For me, it's about the players. You have to feel like, okay, are the players okay with PvP? Because my preferred style is a more gangster-oriented style where PvP is totally you know, on the table provided it's making the game entertaining for everybody. Um, but the thing that you encounter is a lot of times you'll have players that say, yeah, I'm okay with it, but they're really not. So that's the part that you kind of have to weed through if players really aren't you'll notice pretty soon that they're not enjoying themselves but it but it can be frustrating if you think people are on board and they're really not so just i would say try to weed through that and figure it out the campaign that you participated in was the bone breaking campaign the bone breaker sec campaign and that was called the bone breaker sec campaign because they were terrible awful people who went around you know, just, you know, you know, that's how that's how they, that's how they enforce their wills. One of the characters, his name was Bonebreaker, and he would just break people's bones to get them to do what he wanted. And there was a lot of inter-party conflict. I think your character in that campaign, your first character was um, kind of like a hidden enemy within. Yeah, the I, I took the I, I, I took the like, um, I forget what it's called in in. Odegate, but it's like the secretly evil or something secret evil or i wasn't i wasn't actually the thing was i wasn't actually evil i had a secret i was working against the party well, that's, i think I wasn't... if you look at the entry it secretly evil can just be you're working at against the purposes of the party yeah um, it doesn't you didn't have to necessarily be evil evil for it to... yeah and i ended up getting killed by one of the other players uh, in a very 
dramatic scene. It was cool. I, I thought it was a, a fitting end to the character. And I, and I also happened to have, if I remember, I made a deal with the with the demon or something ahead of time. So even after I was killed, that character was killed. He, he became an NPC, but he he actually came back more powerful, if I remember correctly, yeah. I, I, as an NPC. Yeah. In fact, if um if anybody's interested in this, they can they can check it out in in Deathblade's book um in the Legends yeah. of Ogregate book because it does that does it's not like we he didn't do this thing where he makes a whole campaign a story but he took a cool thread from it and uses it as a as one of the hooks in the uh in the intro um yeah that's and, why i forgot about that yeah. i brought that character his name was hidden arrow and yeah. so he became a character in legends of ogregate and it was it in the so what when I was doing Legends of Orga, I really did not want to do the whole like this is a book based on a campaign and yeah. then like everybody can tell, uh, but I did bring stuff in and so in one of the opening scenes, which that opening scene is actually very relevant, but you have to get through the whole book to see why it's relevant. Yeah. In that opening scene, I kind of got my revenge because I had an alternate version of the guy who had killed me. I brought him in and then I had my hidden arrow character kill him. Uh, so that was my secret revenge, uh, but uh, yeah. Oh yeah, that was that was a, that was definitely. A- and uh, I should say, if people want to know about Bonebreaker sect, they can check out um, the uh, Ogre Gate Inn book. That's the book that the sect appears in. And I think Hidden Arrow is in the. Uh, I I don't. I mean, I should know this off the top of my head, but I'm pretty sure we we ended up putting Hidden Arrow in the Crocodile Sect book. I'm almost positive he makes an appearance in there. I think you're right. Yeah, I think there isn't there an artist depiction of him as well, if I remember. Correctly? I think so. That's why I'm, yeah. but but I'm not a hundred percent sure. That's again, you do like a like you end up with like hundreds of characters and things like this, so it's just so easy to lose track of who's where and and all that. Um, like, what did we end up with in this book? 50, 50 characters? Was that it? Was it fifty NPCs? Something like that. Yeah. And as we got as we are, got toward the end of our uh, editing runs, I was already kind of starting to forget which ones I had created and which ones you had created. Some stuck out as some stuck out, which I know, but there were others where I was looking at them, thinking, "Did I make this guy or did Brendan?" No, I, that, remember. I I did that too. But also with a lot of them, what would happen sometimes is one of us would make it, and then the other one would do a pass over it and add their own little personality to it and so that so a lot of them are actually a blend of you and me where one of us made the first go and then somebody else kind of edited it and added things and some of them yeah, probably got like what, three or four treatments like that um, yeah the way we originally way 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 back did it was that um i i created an original list which got very much expanded on but i i think i had like one sentence descriptions of them and then originally we both we took that and then kind of fleshed them out so in the end i think virtually all the characters are kind of combinations of different aspects of input and whatnot that, that we both put into it there, there were a few that we kind of claimed like sword goddess and sunlan the yama queen and a couple of others were like all yours and you know i think i had like people playing witch and Jili Juan and things like that. Yeah, Tree Frog Gao is yours, and there's others. Yeah, yeah, there were a few where it's like you knew, okay, don't touch this one because this is like Jeremy's. Like it has to be done a certain way. Do you know what I mean? Um, but otherwise, it was just make the character better, however we can. Um, and so, uh, uh, but there, but there are a few in there that kind of like you know you can tell like okay, one of us made these. Um, 
but but yeah i think uh you, you know again that's just you know whoosh is a you know it's it's all about the characters do you know what i mean and so when it's all about the characters you have to have uh, a massive quantity of them um yeah so uh i i guess we should probably end it here because we're already on the hour mark um and i i do we know what our our next movie is going to be that we're going to talk about in the next one or do we have a you know a few ideas for that yet or um you totally uh, cut out on me there for oh. a second, but I heard you mention the the next movie. Uh, I, I have there's a, quite a few that we haven't done. I think we were talking about either Killer Clans or maybe Sentimental Swordsman. Uh, I just watched Sentimental Swordsman two, which I actually think was really really good. That's a, but we don't include that in the book, so maybe we should stick to the ones that we actually recommend yeah. in the book. And also, isn't the book that that's based on? I remember that being really long. So if we wanted to revisit the book, it'd be like it's like wasn't that like seven hundred page or eight hundred page? Yeah, I mean the the well, it's uh, Sentimental Swordsman Ruthless Sword is the name of the book directly translated, and it's if I remember the first movie covers about the first half of the book and then the second movie covers the second half roughly speaking um but yeah i do remember part two to that being quite good um i know there was another movie uh oh we were gonna do death duel which we haven't done yet right i don't believe we've done death duel and one of the right that's what it was yeah yeah, there's a reason i want to do death duel there's like a really important scene in that movie um but also that naturally leads us to Swordmaster at some point as well. And the question is, do we do them together or do we do them as separate conversations? Um, they're kind of like, you know, uh, especially since one of the, the, the lead actor from death duel directed swords master. Um, so oh, that I didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, it's very respectful of the, you know, the fact that, you know, it's a, it's a take on the same source material and it's done in a way that to me they almost feel like yin and yang there's like a there's a balance between the two of them um i i I feel like i feel like for example Swordmaster has a lot of daytime shots and uh death duel has a lot of nighttime shots and i feel like that you know i i I haven't actually quantified it so maybe that's just me projecting but i feel like visually there is sort of this this like you know uh, contrast between them um but but yeah so so i guess we'll head out and uh you know we'll maybe you know maybe next time we'll come back with death duel or another movie on the on the list uh and And, uh don't forget to everybody out there which we always forget (laughs) i think to mention this you can pre-order the game now it's supposed to be coming out in early december uh we uh so go you can go to amazon you can go to osprey's website you can go to barnes and noble but just about everywhere it's it's even on like target and walmart yeah. websites you can find it for pre-order and in terms of the movies if you go to my website jeremyby.com and click through to the righteous blood section i have a whole page with all of the movies and books that will be recommended in the in righteous blood ruthless blades including links to where you can find them so you don't have to try to track them down and i also have other recommendations on there as well so definitely check that out and uh, in uh, this is kind of behind-the-scenes news for anybody that has listened to this far, but we got a couple more uh, documents just today from Osprey to review. There's going to be some extra content available, hopefully when the game comes out, 
so that's that's good news. And as far as I can tell, we're still on track for the the release date that's been announced. Yeah, so which is I think December eighth and December tenth, and it's just a difference of two days depending on whether you're in the UK or the US. And I can't remember off the top of my head which yeah, one's which. Yeah, me either. But it's it's early December, just in time for Christmas. So for all of you out there who are you have friends, family, um, or even if the person that you're sending the gift to is yourself, uh, this is going to be great for uh, gamers that like Usha and even just people who are into Usha but aren't necessarily into role-playing games. Maybe you don't have a, a game group that you can play with right away. There's still plenty of stuff that makes this a really fun read, even if you're not intending to actually run a campaign or maybe even if you're just a collector. So, yeah, it's going to be great. Uh, Christmas gift. Yeah, I, I haven't seen the actual printed version yet, but we've all we both seen um, layouts of it. And one of the things that I find about this one, a lot of times, you know, I'm very selective about who I show my role playing books to because if they're not into role playing, they just won't get it. It won't click, and it'll look kind of funny to them. But this has almost a little bit of a coffee table book look to it in a sense where you would, like you said, you wouldn't have to necessarily be into rpgs to flip through the book and find elements of it interesting so um and i think that's one of the cool things about it being so character focused is you know it's it's very readable for you know things like the character entries um so yeah so we'll let you go and until then we will talk to you later with the laughter comes the rain with my anger comes a tide of emotion killing joy cutting steel across your eyes are you dead or insane as you stumble through the night soothe the anguish and the pain with the soft